Hello and welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders podcast from Training Industry. I'm Sarah Gallo, an Associate Editor at Training Industry. And I'm Taryn Aish, Managing Editor of Digital Content at Training Industry. This episode of the Business of Learning is sponsored by Training Industry Research. As a training professional, your job is to effectively manage the business of learning. You probably listen to this podcast to gain insights on L&D trends being used by some of the most innovative thought leaders in our market. But did you know that Training Industry also provides data-driven analysis and best practices through our premium research reports? Our entire catalog, including reports on topics such as deconstructing 70-2010, women's access to leadership development, learner preferences, and the state of the training market, just to name a few, can be found at trainingindustry.com shop research. New insights create new ways for L&D to do business. Let training industry research reports assist you in taking your learning initiatives to new heights. Go to trainingindustry.com slash shop research to view our entire catalog. As we record this episode, the Black Lives Matter movement is stronger than ever before as recent events have exposed the systemic racism that continues to permeate both our individual communities and society at large. Through the power of education, learning leaders have a unique role to play in eliminating racism in the workplace. To learn more about how training can combat racism at work, we're speaking with Dr. Teresa Horn and Dr. Russell Robinson, Senior Training Professionals for Government Agencies, and Valerie Jackson, Senior Director of Global Inclusion and Diversity at Procore Technologies. Teresa, Russell, and Valerie, thanks for joining us today on The Business of Learning. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Great. So to, to get started, let's start by talking about some of the challenges that, that Black employees and employees from other racial minority groups are currently facing in the workplace. Teresa, why don't you start us off? Sure, sure. First, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to this discussion. It's an important topic, and it's very timely, as you guys have stated already. With everything going on in our various communities, I think it's inevitable that what's happening out in the world is, is going to bleed into our work lives, right? And so when we're talking about what challenges that we see Black employees having or other minority groups in our offices, I think a lot of that has to do with lack of voice, right? And so we're talking about people who don't feel like they're being heard. And that's a lot of what the Black Lives Matter movement is standing for and a lot of what the social justice um, campaigns are about. And so taking that into consideration, as well as looking at whether there's a lack of a DNI push at your company, right? Is there some accountability from leadership that really has the basis of diversity and being inclusive to all employees? Not just a statement or a policy, but actual pushing from the leadership that they want to get this to their employees and make sure that they're having these valuable conversations. And then just lastly, I'll put in there too about some of the challenges that I've seen is the inauthenticity that we normally um, can see right now with a lot of companies coming out with these, you know, statements saying how they are now aware of these things that I think have been talked about for many, many years. So I think the inauthenticity of it um, can create a perception uh, to minorities or even other uh, groups like veterans or disabled workers that you really don't put into leadership roles. It doesn't come across as authentic, right? You're not putting that value into your employees. So I think that's sort of the challenges that I've seen in the workplace. Thank you. Russell, why don't you go next? Anything to add there? 
Yeah, so I'm going to piggyback on Orange uh, said about voice because I think when you when you look at the challenge flex in the workplace, I mean, it really gets to what she said about voice, and I would take that a, a step further and say feelings of being invisible, feelings of being visible, not being included, how that relates to culture, whether that means there is access to promotion and leadership positions throughout the organization. And before I got into this uh, ODL space 20 years ago, I was a CPA and I worked for a firm that was based out of Albany, New York. It was 300 employees and it was myself and three black women. And, you know, we, we fit, we became our own culture. You know, we became each other's backbone, but we often talked about how we never felt included in any of the, the social activities. Or we looked at a company where there were no blacks in at any level besides the rank and file. There was no level of leadership. The impact of all of this is uh, what, I'll, what I'll really talk about is, especially because where we are on the back end of COVID being involved, is it really has an impact on, on mental health and feeling empowered and feeling that you can be confident. And uh, the one last piece I would say to kind of, uh, the, based on some of the research I do, is, is to also understand that Black people and people of color are not a monolith. You know, we all experience things very differently. And I think, uh, I think as we get later into the conversation, I'll probably re return to that point. So that, that's what I'd have to say. Thank you, Russell. Great points as well. Um, Valerie, what about you? Thank you uh, for inviting me here because I feel like listening to Teresa and Russell, I'm hearing my existence spoken into existence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it, I am plus oneing everything I'm hearing. And yes, I agree that it's voice as well as representation. We all want to be heard and seen. And in some of our organizations, ethnic minorities, and in particular, Black people are some of the least represented and often, as a result, some of the least seen whether it's seen in your corporate imagery, seen in the executive ranks, seen on your hallway, seen in your Zoom rooms, and that can take a toll. In addition to representation in most environments, not all, but in most environments we lack the representation, we also have a, a challenge with transparency. Transparency around the processes, the fairness of the processes, the transparency of the opportunities being awarded. And um, I have to agree again with what Russell said around the comfort. Many of us, I am also black every day of my life. And for the last few decades I've been working in corporate America. I'm a recovering lawyer, but I used to work at the public accounting regulator. <laughs> so what Russell was saying, I was remembering viscerally. And even though I've worked in some fantastic companies, many of us don't feel comfortable or feel that we have the permission to be our authentic selves outside of our homes, maybe even outside of our heads. And so having that comfort disappear when you walk into a meeting or you step into a Zoom room 
and you add the cognitive load of something like a global pandemic, a lot of us are just weighed down in a way that few others, I think, can understand and empathize with as much as we need in this moment. And if I could jump in for a second to just piggyback on what Valerie said, you know, the week, I think the week George, George Floyd died, which I think was Memorial Day, I'm, I'm 51. I had never been through a week like that. I got my job. So I'm always on. And I actually, you know, at first I was going to halfway go to work, like all meetings are Zoom, so I'll turn the video off. And then I just took the day off. But then by the week, Get back more about he said. I've never been so exhausted at the end of the week. I was talking to everybody. Uh, I was talking to my friends who experienced what I experienced. I was talking to to white people and non-black people of color who were just having this awakening or or wokeness to to this whole experience. And I just remember on Friday, and I was talking to a couple of my college friends. It was like I've just never been so exhausted and tired at the end of a week. And it just, it can really weigh down on Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll piggyback on that too, because, you know, when we look at it in the learning realm, that's when we start getting all of the pings from executives. Hey, fix this problem, right? Okay, let's hurry up and do a training on this so that we can say that we checked that box, that we're, you know, communicating with our employees about what's going on in the world. And so with us being in these positions as people of color, it makes it very difficult for us to kind of disengage from what our role is and our job is to get things done, but then still have that emotional appeal that we're having anyway. And so I think what Valerie and Russell are saying has also kind of resonated with me as well, where I still have to get the job done and I still have to go to these meetings and put the face on and and kind of be the spokesperson or what's happening in, in the world and what we should do at our, at our company. And that's not particularly fair, but at the end of the day, I feel like it's necessary and needed. And so if it's going to be anyone, it, it will be me. Yes, Teresa. It doesn't mean that it's any easier, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I, I happen to be married to my best friend who continued to remind me through what have been the hardest weeks in professional memory, reminding me that if they're not talking to you, Valerie, who do you want them to talk to? (laughs) If they're not getting strategy and advice from you, who should they be getting it from? Would you be okay with that? Would you rather they not go to you? (laughs) Would you rather they make it up as, right? Like, so on, on one hand, those of us who've elected to walk this path, which we know is challenging and which we know is rewarding, We also have learned recently that sometimes the burden for us in this role is heavy in a way that others cannot understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know whether all of us have found the right balance between doing what we need to take care of ourselves. I love that you brought up mental health, Russell. The struggle is real. I I don't know that we're even doing what we need for ourselves um, balancing that with what we need to do for our people. Mm-hmm. When I say our people, I mean the people in our workplace, right? The people on all of our teams at work and then at home and then in the broader community. It is a real challenge. And I think one of the solutions would be 
for more varied types of people to engage in this work. Mm-hmm. I think when you bring COVID in, and, and I always looked at it as you, you kind of have, uh, and it's not just George Floyd, it's Ahmaud Arbery, it's Breonna Taylor. Um, personally for me, Amy Cooper in Central Park just irked me beyond belief more. And then you think about it from the context of, and we're also dealing with COVID. And I had a friend who said, well, COVID is the great equalizer. Anybody could get it. And the data says, no, actually, it's not the great equalizer. It impacts Black people more. But then I actually thought about it. COVID actually prepared us for this. So from an ODL and a training standpoint, when we were talking about COVID and people working at home and barriers being down, we talked about how do you maintain your wellness? Mm -hmm. So a lot of it for me was continuing to do what I do as I talk to my leaders at, at jobs is, okay, are you still getting your workout in? Okay, what, what are you reading? Are you getting your time in for meditation, yoga, uh, whatever spiritual foundation you had? So from that aspect, COVID actually laid the groundwork to be prepared to be the ODL person and to also be, you know, to add flavor to being the truth teller to the organization. So I think a lot of what Valerie talks mm-hmm. about is when you're that only black person, <laughs> you're everybody's outlet mm-hmm. for the same question. And I think a lot of times there are days where it's like, I really, you know, I really don't want to answer that question. If you've ever had a sick family member and there are days where it's like, I really just need to zone out. And you've got people who care about you who want to ask you about that family member, but then part of you is like, I really don't want to go there. So I think COVID helped me for my organization because we had already gotten in a routine of talking to people about maintaining their, their, their wellness, both physical and mental. And recognizing the humanity of our people. Yeah. Making yeah, that okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Making it okay to be human, to be a human working. Definitely, definitely. Those are all important points to be thinking about right now. What steps would you say that learning leaders can actually take to help ease some of these challenges and just create more of a fair and just workplace for all employees? Teresa, do you want to start us off with this one? Sure, sure. So, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about now have kind of given the, the anecdotes to that, right? And so I'll just add a little bit more to that and say that really this is about being heard, right? So you have to have those discussions and you have to facilitate these sensing sessions and talk about what's happening so that people feel like I'm not cutting off life when I walk through the door to work, right? Because people care about what happens in your life as a human being. So those discussions, I think, you know, learning leaders should really start doing facilitated sensing sessions, making sure that the mental health is there, making sure that you're offering up these things so that people feel like they can talk about it and air out some of those things at work. Also, I'd say to really lean on your ERGs and your employee advisory committees. This is the time where if you don't have ERGs, you need to be pushing and working with and partnering with your EEO office to make sure that you're putting in place employee resource groups. Having these places where these conversations can happen offline is really important. Also, again, you know, going back to the training content side of things, just making sure that it's interactive and thought provoking and not a check the box type of training that 
you know, a lot of us see with DNI, right? Where you're talking about, okay, we're, you know, what's the difference between diversity and inclusion versus what does diversity and inclusion look like at our company? What is our organizational culture? What are our retention numbers? What does our leadership look like? What is our, you know, this is when you start making a training that is thought provoking, and then you're starting to get an understanding from your employees on where we are as a company. So it's great to hear about DNI, but at the end of the day, you work at a company every day. <laughs> so you want to know how you fit into that role and into that mission. And so I think it's really important for leaders to, to take that on. And then again, just partnering with EEO, partnering with your branch managers to make sure that their needs, because they're going to be different in every department. So you'll have a different makeup. For instance, I worked at a company that all the support staff that worked in administration were all African-American, but then every other professional area and department was all white. And so giving diversity training, you know, certain departments were saying, we don't need this. We don't have a diversity issue, right? Because their everyday work environment, they're working around people that they see and that looks, you know, exactly how they do. They don't see it because they don't look at the administrative division and say, well, why is everyone there African-American in the support roles? So I think it's important to really start reaching out as a learning leader to the branch managers, to your EEO team, and really bringing in data to provide conversation at your company. Don't allow it to be just the check the box training of let me tell you what DNI is and let me tell you what anti-racism looks like. No, let's, let's bring it into the 21st century and talk about where we are as a company and how that fits in. Definitely. Valerie, do you have anything to add on? Great points, all of them. As I think about focusing specifically on what learning leaders can do, I, I would always encourage us to step backward to the beginning and make sure that we're learning what the challenges are. I loved how Teresa was talking about, let's focus on what's true within our company, our organization, our community, whatever group or team you are serving as a leader, doing our homework to learn what the true challenges are by educating ourselves about the challenges and the workable solutions without assuming the universality thereof. <laughs> uh, and then creating safe spaces for those who are experiencing the challenges while we are working on rectifying them. And I like to advocate for creating safe spaces for learners and challenging spaces for learners. I think we need both at different points of the learning journey perhaps uh, to encourage different types of integration of different points and experiences. And then we should always be keeping in mind the diversity of our sources, right? The, the sources that we use when we're building a training, the vendors we're using either to come in and do it for us or to align with us in the journey and the diversity of the sources that they are using. And of course, always, assessing what we do for timeliness, relevance, and when it comes to content and delivery, inclusivity. Not just what we deliver, but how, right? For sure. Russell, do you have anything to add on? Right, so uh, I think both Teresa and Valerie, or Valerie have hit on some good points. That before you do the stuff, you, you really have to assess what's going on. And, and I'll just be honest, 
I'm an engagement and voice researcher. And based on my research, my work experience, and my ODL experience, you have to make sure the leaders care. Because a lot of times when things don't happen, it's truth be told, the leaders really don't care. So you really need to have a conversation with your leadership right now and say, what type of skin do you have in the game? And if the skin in the game is in the leadership is, you know, we really don't want to touch this. We, we want to cut a check. then that's cool. If it's really we want to do something, check the box. That's cool. If they think there is not an issue, then all of that goes into how you then shape the type of training you do. And I think part of the challenge is, in a sense, this is different, but it's not different. So from a change management and a disruption standpoint, there's always stuff like that. You can go back to, and in, in thinking about COVID, you can go back to the Spanish flu. You can go back to H1N1. You can go back from a communication standpoint to the, the financial crisis in 2008. And what we need to do as learning leaders is we need to one, be creative, do things outside of the, the box. I mean, yeah, I can't tell you how many emails I got saying, hey, we're looking for people to do unconscious bias training. And I'm like, well, actually, you need to do conscious bias training because that's where the ball game is. That's where the ball game is. Um, but then on the back end of all of this, mm. when you're talking to the leaders, when you're asking, asking them what skin they have in the game, then it gets to intentionality, metrics, and accountability. And, and from an engagement standpoint, I kind of saw this during Me Too, but, but it really didn't hit me on the realness. Like you can do, do anti-harassment training. You can do anti-harassment training and the CEO says any complaint of sexual harassment, I need to know about within 24 to 48 hours. And if I don't, there are gonna be ramifications. And then you put that into your leaderships in, in your leaders and supervisors performance review. So what I'm saying in regards to learning leaders is this is just a part. This is, and, and, and if your leaders don't care or not invested, or they're not going to have the accountability and the metrics on the back end, then you get to what Teresa says, and you really could just have a check the box type of training. And, and, you know, then that gets to what, how, how are we aligning to the values of our organization? And that's a totally different conversation. And I'll, I'll just add on to, to what Russell said, because I know that there will be some, some learning leaders listening to this and they'll say, well, how do I get, you know, my executive staff to support these, these types of things, to put the money behind it, to put the action behind it. And I'll just reiterate that it's really important that you tie the data to your program, right? Or whatever you're building it on. You have to tie data to that. So going in and telling them I feel this way or we did a sensing session and they said is not going to put dollars and cents behind your ideas. And so I would just leave that note there to say, if you're really trying to, to push a program of this magnitude, and it's, it's a big magnitude. This isn't one of those, I'm gonna do an unconscious bias training and we're done. If you're really putting in the work to do this type of training, it's year long, right? It's not a one-time thing or, or half a year, we're going to, that's the check the box. So if you have that, 
we're letting you know now that's the check the box. Um, this is a full-blown program that that needs to be instituted at every company, whether you call it cultural awareness, whether you call it under DNI and EEO. I know a lot of offices, the EEO offices owns this space, but again, use that data, use the surveys, use the exit and the stay surveys, the employee satisfaction, the, the hiring and retention data, use all of that as a way to negotiate, you know, when you get to that table on what your needs are for the year. But, and Teresa, see, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because you got to do that assessment. And part of that assessment, I mean, from a, from a voice standpoint, whenever we start a voice initiative, I tell whoever the, the leader is, or whoever the change agent is, are you prepared to share the data if the data says you are the problem? And I know a lot <laughs> right. of times, you know, and, and, and so like, uh, for example, you look at Adidas, for example. So maybe uh, a year or so ago when they signed Beyonce, they put out this press release about uh, for all the talent we pay to endorse, they're so diverse, you know, they're about diversity. And then like a week later, the New York Times came out with an article to, where, where this, group, with a group, this group of black employees at Adidas had filed EEOs and they were working in a toxic culture and they weren't getting access to jobs. So you really have to prepare your leadership to say, you know, we, we may have racial or diversity issues. And you have to make sure whether they're, they're willing to share the information with that. Because what I found is when you start to survey and the data goes left and then they don't share, that actually makes the situation worse. Yes. And in this situation, if, if I step up and I think I'm in a safe space and I say, you know what, I report to Valerie and I'm being discriminated against for A, B, and C, that actually could put me in a much more vulnerable place. And I think as the conduits, we have to be clear, we need to know how intentional our leadership is about it and how invested they are in making changes. I think you're both right. I 1000% agree that we have to be led by data. We have to use data to form our strategies, to form our arguments uh, and to guide our way forward. I also think that how we collect the data are germane to each organization and our leaders may not be prepared to hear, see, or release the data, however it is collected. And so for some of our organizations, and I've worked in organizations where an engagement survey was never allowed, right? Because of what Russell just said. And so how do you get employee voice and how do you solicit data through other sources that are already agreed upon? These are some cultural discussions, but I think that you're both right. And I think that you both represent the challenges that we face in trying to collect what we need in order to lead the changes that we need to see while navigating company culture, company priorities, individual business leaders' priorities, and then in the rest of the world. <laughs> Thank you all for that. So we've, we've talked, you've, you've talked a little bit about some of the, the reasons that initiatives don't work. And I want to delve a little bit more into the training itself. And, you know, we, we know that there's, there's some numbers out there and some research out there that says that a lot of, you know, anti-bias training, anti-racism training doesn't work and does end up being, you know, what Teresa and Russell talked about that check the box training. Why do you think 
it ends up being like that? What, what are the problems with that training um, that have existed to this point? And uh, uh, Russell, do you want to start us off? Or? Yeah, sure. So um, for me, at the end of the day, it goes back to what are the values of the organization. Tell me what the values are, and that's going to drive everything. So part of the challenges with race-based training is because it's viewed as a standalone training aspect, when in actuality, it needs to be woven into each aspect of, our, of, of an organization. You know, it should be totally a part of the talent management process. How are we incorporating questions to incorporating interview questions so that they capture rate, may identify race and bias? Yes, we incorporate training. That isn't just check the box training, but what other stuff are you doing to build the, the culture? Are you working with your communications, your engagement people, so that they're doing maybe doing that, maybe they're doing employee profiles. Maybe you understand what's going on with the type of cultures you're bringing blacks and people of of color into and then how are we making sure that we're promoting based on all of these values i think when it's a standalone aspect and and truth be told i've talked to friends who have been asked to facilitate anti-racism discussions within their workplace and the big struggle is should this be mandatory or not mandatory and and there's and you know there's there's pros and cons on both sides of that. And then it really gets into also, are the leaders participating and being overt? So if we're rolling out this training, I want my CEO in there, in the training, and emailing staff, letting them know, hey, I've taken this training, I want you to take it. What I found is when we do trainings and our, our CEO is there, the minute the CEO lets everybody know he's going to be there, well, then his direct reports are going to be in the training. And then their direct reports are going to be in the training. So you have to be overt about it. And then lastly, it really gets to, to what role DNI play. Does Is diversity just a check the box? Or are they immersed in all aspects of the values and, and the talent management process, the the supporting and helping leaders and also building a safe culture. I completely agree, Russell, with everything you just said about, you know, having that full leadership support, having the transparency, right? And that I think that also goes back to that authenticity, right? You have to really follow your words with actions. And so if we have policies, make sure that those policies are enforced if we have organizational change that are occurring because of the, the, um, the campaign that we're running, put that information out and be transparent about, oh, we missed the mark on these things this year, but we're going to do this to work on it. Or where are we at in our goals on this? And so a lot of that goes back to leadership being authentic. And a lot of times as a leader, it becomes very difficult for us to kind of guide our executives down the right path. On, on this particular topic, um, they'll, they'll jump on everything else um, and give you funding for it. But on this particular topic, I think the fear is that the conversations that will occur will then cause production to slow because then people will be upset with each other. Then people will be airing out things that they don't like about leadership. And so I think in a sense, when we look at it from, from a different standpoint, it's a fear that they have and we have to find a way 
as the learning leader to have that conversation and be persuasive enough to say, we will look at those fears in a holistic way to make sure that we're safe as an executive team, right? And so I think that goes back to how you bring the conversation to, to leadership, to your executive board about it. And then I also say that you have those issues with accountability where you don't get the funding and the support on it. And it's that annual check the box. But again, it goes back to what are we doing as leaders to say, we're not doing a check the box. Here's my plan for it this year. This is the funding behind it. This is what the impact will be to the agency. And it goes back to that data where you say, we're at this point right now, this percentage of engagement because of X, Y, Z. And this is where I can have you in a year in X, Y, Z. And I think it starts making it look like, oh, I'm going to look great as an executive if, if this campaign actually works. And so how we sell it is as important as the content that we're, we're talking about. And so I'll just say to that, again, the full leadership support, we do need that and we need to fight for that and make sure that they're being transparent along the lines of, how it's affecting the organizational culture and how it's looking as far as the standards of enforcement. Because like you said earlier, if we have a sexual harassment zero tolerance policy, then there is no reason we shouldn't have an anti-racism zero tolerance policy, where if you are found to be doing anything racist or bigoted, whether that's on your personal social sites, you know, because we've seen many, many people coming out now who are being, quote unquote, cancel culture, where, you know, when they post things on their, their social media that are racist or bigoted, and they're losing their jobs behind it. And from another standpoint, I was looking at those happening in, in, in the news, and I was saying, well, I hope that these people work in an at-will state, because if not, they may have a lawsuit, right? Because there has to be a, a policy to say that I can't do this before you let me go for it in some places. So again, it goes back to if there's a zero tolerance policy behind it, that provides meat, that provides, you know, legs to whatever campaign you're really trying to push behind anti-racism policies. Well, let me ask you a question. So I, I've gone back and forth between the zero, zero tolerance and not. If I have a bias and it's unconscious, and let's say I make an... I'm black. So let's say I make an off-color joke towards uh, uh, someone of Mexican or Hispanic descent. And let's say, Teresa, you're my supervisor. And you're like, hey, that comment you made, people took offense to it. And if I'm authentic, like, oh my God, I didn't know that. I meant that was a joke. I feel sorry about it. I'm remorseful. Is that grounds zero tolerance? It means I get fired off of that. So I think there's, I mean, I, I, I think there should be... Not necessarily. Be... Not necessarily. Zero tolerance doesn't mean fired. It means that you will have repercussions. Okay. And so, you know, it's up to leadership at that point to decide what that, you know, policy looks like and whether, you know, a situation like what you just said would be, you know, a write-up or something like that. And it goes in your file. But I don't think these things are at the point where it's okay to ease or, or fluff over them because we can assume that a person is very sorry. But as we've seen in the news lately, Amy Cooper, uh, she's sorry after she gets caught, right? She's sorry after she loses her job. She's not, <laughs> I don't think it feels very um, authentic, her apology. I think it's more so, 
hey, I don't want these bad things to happen to me because of what I did. And so I think that happens in the workplace all the time. That's why we have an EEO office, right? Because I don't think anyone comes in and says, you know what, I'm going to harass someone today. But if you are a person that harasses others, there should be a consequence to that in the workplace. Thanks, Teresa. I think, you know, unconscious bias is definitely an important subject to talk about here. Leading into our next question, we know some learners may not actually recognize their own bias and therefore may be resistant or hesitant to racial bias training because they may simply think that they don't need it. Um, how can racial bias training engage reluctant learners and achieve their buy-in? Valerie, do you want to start us off with this one? So I think that bias training period, because we have biases around all sorts of things, right? I think the bias training period has been one of the most celebrated and vilified <laughs> trainings in this area for so long. And um, engaging reluctant learners, I think, is, is a challenge because when you come to hard stuff, what we don't know can be hard. What we're afraid of can be hard. Hurting other people can be hard to come to terms with. Hearing something we don't like or agree with can be hard. And diving into unconscious biases for some people could include all of these things. And so they run screaming from the hills because they don't want to know, they don't want to feel, right? And that is a human reaction. How we engage people and get them to wanna to come to the table despite these fears, I think has been challenging over time and making it mandatory has only seen, I think, a modicum of success. I think it's really hard to mandate that someone learn and internalize something, right? And I think that's, where uh, both Russell and Teresa agree, there is limited utility in forcing people to do something because it can turn into a check the box and it possibly may not be effective at all. I personally believe that directing, that getting buy-in for anything requires that we answer the fundamental principle. And Teresa touched on this earlier, the WIFM, the what's in it for me mm -hmm. principle. Whether we're teaching something or selling something, <laughs> Either way, we have to address that fundamental question. And so as someone who delivers unconscious bias training, I always strive to develop and deliver the content in such a way that I am bringing people in, helping them to see and feel how, while you may be uncomfortable, you are supported and then gently easing them into both the science and the stories. I think we need both. I love the brain. I think it's a fascinating organ that gets us into a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> and, and so elucidating for people how the brain works, in some cases, relieving people of the self-flagellation that they engage in when they realize that, oh my gosh, my brain is making me an awful person. Okay, let's back up. Your brain does a whole lot of things without you knowing, okay? It's working while you're sleeping too. It's more about once you've learned what's going on underneath, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? How are you growing? How are you seeking to mitigate 
the bias? How are you trying to expose yourself to new people, to new stories? And the stories can help embed the learning in a way that someone may not have been incentivized to accept if you're just, you know, sitting listening to all the statistics or the reasons. When we hit people with stories that come from people whom we care about or whom we relate to, people to whom we relate, you know what I mean? We hear differently. Our brain fires differently. And sometimes those learnings are the most impactful. We might spark a revelation in a training, but in many cases I've seen that revelation become embedded after the training, outside of the training, in a, in a conversation, listening to a story. So yeah. I think it's a multifaceted approach. Russell, Russell. Yeah, so I think uh, I am going to vehemently and excitedly agree with everything <laughs> that Valerie just said. Um, Me too. <laughs> yeah, so I think, it, you know, you, based on the trainings I've seen, we don't capture the story. And I go back to this holistic aspect of talent management. So this should all be piggybacking off the trust and team building type of training, the emotional intelligence training, because what you're really trying to do is, is really bring that humanity in where people can have those type of conversations. So for example, a couple of weeks ago, my dissertation chair was called to check in on me. And uh, she is a white woman, a Quaker, who is now a Buddhist and a critical race theorist. Hmm. Uh, yeah, awesome. And she was talking about a Black student and just told me, you know, he's just so articulate. And I'd stop her and I said, you know, <laughs> that's a microaggression. And, and when you tell a Black person they are articulate, it's kind of taken as a backhanded compliment. And I know she didn't mean it like that, but I know we built trust with each other and we, we have that humanity where we can share those type of stories. And, and I agree with what Valerie, well, I agree with all, everything Valerie said, but I really agree with the part where the trust, the, the, this type of training is really just a springboard, the different conversations. So, so I think part of what organizations have to do is they have to bring a lot of the stories into the training, but there also has to be data. But I also think the training cannot be a standalone. And the cool thing is with where we are in the world, with micro learning, with podcasts and little bite-sized trainings, there are ways for organizations to really make it part of the culture through, through and part of its beliefs and assumptions by making it part of it, its artifacts. Whether you have little little videos you send out, little snippets to staff, do you put uh, testimonials from employees and you put them up on the wall so that people can see it and be reminded of it? I mean, I think those two things and just really piggybacking on her, just the aspect of training. I think training has a chance to capture more stories and also incorporate data because what I've all seen a lot of times is a lot of data and not a lot of stories or just people sit down and tell their stories and then there's no data to back it up or substantiate. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that I've worked in a lot of different places and you see at different stages where different leaders have taken their companies, right? You have the really engaged leader who is on top of it. And if they see an issue, they're like, nope, let's jump on it really early. Where you have those other ones who 
have long-standing issues that they keep sweeping under the rug because they don't want to look as though there's anything wrong with their company or under their leadership. So I think for us, it's really important to know your culture, right? And so we talked about that earlier. I know Russell touched on that a lot when he was talking about bringing the leaders in and making sure that they are, you know, bought into the process. They're going to the trainings. They're giving their stories, right? Because a lot of the employees at a company look up to those leaders and it doesn't matter the race. It matters a lot of times just the grit and the effort um, that a person takes to get to a certain level. And so if they see you there and you're sharing your story, I think that humanizes leaders and it also brings uh, about camaraderie with the collective, right? And so for us, I would say to make sure again that leaders are there and bought into whatever training that you're giving, that they are there sharing their stories, not just there to listen to employee stories. Because I think at the end of the day, we forget that leaders are people too that they were once in those same seats that those people are sitting in. And so bringing that in and tying that in, I think will bring a whole new element to engaging learners that are reluctant and for achieving their buy-in early on. And so on the flip side of that coin is if you have that, that leader that sweeps things under the rug. Um, and for us as learning leaders, it can be very difficult for us to find a way to for them to have interest in it and so it goes back to what valerie was saying where what's in it for me and so you have to be ready to make that statement to your employees especially if you're doing a mandatory training right because once that mandatory title gets on there people are already defensive you're trying to force me to learn something you're trying to tell me that i'm bad you're trying to tell me i don't know my job and so at the end of the day, it's how we go about doing things and the content of what we're giving to our learners. And again, the stories, the what's in it for me, the bringing the leaders in, as well as, you know, with those that have longstanding issues that are swept under the rug, you may find a mess that's way too big for training to clean up alone. It may not be you to champion that. It may be EEO, it may be HR, it may be another area. And so really taking a look at your specific culture and seeing how that aligns with your program will really, really help you in, in uh, engaging your learners more. 100%. And you know what, as you were speaking, as both of you were speaking, I was reminded that when it comes to unconscious bias trainings in particular, I think that we have to set the expectation before and during that this is not a come and learn about it and fix it, voila, you're done kind of mm -hmm. thing, right? It's, it's, you're not coming to learn about how to operate a software program, okay? <laughs> you can't come in, to get the outline, get the toolkit, and you're done. Unconscious bias training even if you deliver multiple iterations over a learning journey, it is still a tool designed to create awareness and to begin someone or push them further along on their learning and evolution journey. We are not, through a training, going to erase the unconscious associations that exist in someone's brain nor are we going to change through a training the conscious associations people make in their networks. Training can't fix everything. Absolutely. Thank you for that.
So we know that uh, that racism is is very popular to talk about in the media right now. Everyone's thinking about it, talking about it, but we also know that it's not new and that many people have to think about it all the time. And so how can we make sure that our organizations are keeping inclusion, keeping equity top of mind, regardless of what's happening in the news cycle, what's, you know, what's going on in current events? It's really about building it into the strategic plan. It has to have its talons into the strategic plan, period. Whether that's in your onboarding, your leader promotions, your conferences that you're running, it has to be in everything. And hopefully, if your leadership finds that it is important, that it's put into performance plans, it's put into policies, like what we've been talking about. And so we're kind of giving you all the, the nuts and bolts to really make this a, a huge program at any company over the, the length of this discussion. And so I just would say again, to make sure that it's built into the plan. And that's your job as a learning leader is to make sure that it is a part of the plan and it doesn't get swept under the rug um, using those tools that we've provided to you in this discussion about how to sell it to leadership and what components need to be a part of it and what you need to look out for. So I think that creates an all year round effect when it's a part of everything, right? It's a part of your strategic plan. It's a part of our thought processes every day. And so it won't uh, fall to the wayside and it won't become a check the box. And then again, I'll just reiterate something that I said earlier is to collaborate, partner and collaborate. You do not have to be the superhero of uh, diversity. Okay. This is not what we're asking you to do. Um, so when you partner and collaborate with EEO and HR and your executive staff, whether you have an executive council that maybe looks at different things, I'm not sure if every company has that, but if there is an executive council, you need to be talking to them. You need to have a seat there so that you're able to say, this needs to be a part of, of the conversation. And so that partnering and collaborating is a huge piece of it to keep it all year round because once your talents are in multiple departments, your talents are in the strategic plan, your talents are in the content, you're not going to have a problem after that. Well, I think, uh, I think I go back to, as a precursor to the strategic plan, I go back to, again, it goes back to the values of the organization. And if you look at the values for most organizations, I mean, they use the same, same stuff. Uh, integrity, excellence, creativity, respect, safety, all of those have some form of line to having a workforce that is diverse, feels included, that's equitable, and feels like it has belonging. And it's got to be, and I think we went through a period where people were being inquisitive or people were, were angry but now it really gets to what those, what those next steps are. And I think this really is an opportunity for a whole new aspect of thinking, but it really gets into talent management. Like what is your talent management philosophy? Do you have strong, inspiring leaders? And are your workers in an open and safe culture? And when you look at, at, training, which is, I agree with Teresa, it's just one part, but from a bigger standpoint of 
addressing racism or anti-racism, they're going to play a part in all three of those, all three of those lanes. It will become year-round, but then what you're, what organizations have to understand is then that plays a role in the type of branding you have as an organization. So how that impacts the type of customers you have or what type of employees you have. And then when you talk about those impacts, because at the end of the day, it may be that's what impacts the bottom line. So when Teresa talked about Amy Cooper, I mean, part of part of her being fired was because the organization didn't want their brand to be negatively impacted. So I think when you look at it from that aspect and make it totally year round by focusing on talent management, developing strong, aspiring leaders, it's, it's part of your hiring, training, promoting and development process and creating an open and safe culture, you have the ability to make change, but there also has to be accountability. There has to be metrics. And that may mean the role of DNI may have to change. You know, maybe DNI is now seen as you also have to be the pipeline for identifying people, or maybe those metrics need to change. The last thing I'll say is, and, and I've said this also about COVID, I don't know what your New Year's or New Year's Eve resolutions were, but 2020 has turned into the year of resilience in an aspect. But it also means if you're in training, if you're in DNI, if you're in HR, this is the year where you prove your mettle. Like if you're an expert at what you do, then this is the opportunity for you to mm -hmm. step up and say whether determine whether HR is uh, the conscience of the organization or a tool of management. Are you out to increase engagement scores or improve employee experience? Are you out to hire diverse numbers? Or do you want those employees to feel like they are part of the family and, and you're hiring somebody and have an opportunity to say, you know what, I can make it to the C-suite. I can make it to on the board of directors, uh, federal government. I can make it to the SES rank. So this is really the moment of truth for HR. Wow, so much, so much good stuff. This this conversation has been a gift to me in so many ways. In my career, the last what, thirteen or so years, I focused exclusively on inclusion and diversity, and then before that, I was practicing law, right? So it's been a minute that I've been living in I and D and it means something different everywhere. And I think that similar situation applies to folks who do learning. It, the people who deliver learning look, operate, are respected differently in every organization. If we are talking about those of us who are delivering learning, it may be because it's in our title or maybe because it's in our hearts or maybe because we got a voice that we use. However we are delivering learning for our organizations, I agree with what both of my peers have said. You have to align with the company or organization values. It has to be woven into strategy. And because of my bias, as someone who focuses on inclusion and diversity, uh, my bias is toward weaving what I do into everything everyone does. And I think that's how we should approach the important concepts we need our people to learn because we're not asking them just to sit and listen. We're asking them to learn. And we know the majority of learning takes place by doing. So it's not just about crafting our trainings. It's also about creating environments where people can do and be. And so for those, for those of us who have it in our title or those of us who don't, we can all be learning leaders. We can all be cultural champions and for those of us who are in that effort, 
I hope you're taking care of yourselves right now. Because this year has been a year. It's only half over. We got work to do. But also know that you're not alone. We are not alone. And if we look beyond the title and focus primarily on the people who are working to bring a better understanding to the people in our organizations, whatever those titles are, a better understanding, a better experience, a better way forward, we're all in this together. And so maybe that way, collectively, we can inspire and ignite change within our organizations and outside of them. Thank you so much, Valerie, for that. I, I definitely agree. You know, this is a time where, where we all need to be taking action and really putting learning into action so that we can make a change. And like we mentioned before, you know, I really think that learning leaders are, are specifically able to help make that change and we all need to be doing our role right now. So that wraps up this episode of the Business of Learning and thank you all for contributing to what we hope will become an ongoing conversation within all companies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and the conversation. Great conversation. Yes, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. For more information on how training can advance racial equity in the workplace, we recently launched a resources page on trainingindustry.com. We're continually adding to it, so we'll link to that in the show notes, as well as some other resources that, that you might find interesting and helpful. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us to help other learning leaders find us. Thanks for listening. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.